Well, it is the top of the hour, so we are going to get started. Good evening, good afternoon, or good morning, wherever you are joining us from. Uh, before we begin our session, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about the Global Math Department. The Global Math Department is an organization that is run entirely by volunteers. To keep the free, high-quality PD, we need webinar speakers, webinar hosts, and writers for our weekly newsletter. Newsletter writers share about an area of math or math teaching that resonates with them or discusses recent math blogs that help teachers reflect on their practice. If you would like to volunteer or know someone who would be great in any of these areas, please have them email us at globalmathdepartment at gmail.com or have them reach out to us on Twitter. Let's get started with tonight's webinar. My name is Lee Natero, and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight, we're going to be hearing from Sean Nank on reigniting our passion, 10 tips to thrive post-pandemic. Are we there yet? Would everyone please introduce themselves in the chat window telling us what you teach, where you teach, and what your Twitter handle is, if you have one. And I can see we already have some people introducing themselves in the chat. I see some familiar names and locations. Romania, Missouri, Chicago, the Big Island in Hawaii, Philippines, Wisconsin, Iowa. And I am from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Feel free to also share what uh, you actually teach, uh, what grade level, or maybe you're a math coach. Sometimes we have quite a few math coaches here or school administrators as well. Before I introduce our speaker, I'd like to explain how these meetings work. These meetings are recorded and are available within 24 hours after the meeting ends. To view the recording, you can use the same link you used to get here tonight. The global math community prides itself on being friendly and supportive. The chat room is available for topical and general conversation throughout the meeting. I'll be sure to catch your questions for the presenter to be addressed at the end of the presentation. Um, tonight, our speaker is Sean Nank. Uh, Sean received the Presidential Award for Excellence in Math and Science Teaching, and he is a distinguished teacher in residence and adjunct professor at California State University, San Marcos, a full professor at American College of Education, and he works for Oceanside Unified School District. He's published multiple books, articles, and K-12 math curricula, and he has worked in various positions within the United States Department of Education, White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, National Science Foundation, California Department of Education, California Commission on Teacher Credentialing, the San Diego County Office of Education and Smarter Balance Assessment Consortium. Wow, that is a lot of extra work there, Sean. But I'm sure you have wonderful experiences and ideas that you're gonna share with us tonight. Yeah, I hope so, thanks. I'm kind of blushing because of the introduction. <laughs> now I know why people ask if I sleep. So <laughs> thanks for the intro. And as she said, my name's Sean Nank and we're gonna be talking about reigniting our passion. There's going to be a little bit of math in our talk right now, but mostly it's going to be things that get us ready to be able to teach and learn with mathematics. And I'm going to spoiler alert it right away and say, I hope you disagree with at least some of the things that I say tonight, because I'm reminded of a quote that I first heard on the series Dexter. Uh, it goes something to the effect of embrace those who seek the truth, but beware those who say they've already found it. Any answer I share with you tonight is my answer. So I encourage you to think through these so that we can recenter ourselves in a, well, I say, are we there yet? Because it feels like we are, but then they're not. People are calling it a pandemic and then an endemic. And then I see masks on and masks off. And I don't know about you all, but the first year was easier because I knew what was going to happen. But the second year going back and forth in the ambiguity, it can be a little stressful. I'll start with one other comment and then I'll go through the top 10 talk, which is uh, just to prime the pump. 
overarchingly, if you take nothing else away from this evening, take this one thing away. I've been seeing a lot of different things posted online. I've heard a lot of conversations where teachers and educators of any genre need to start taking care of themselves and each other. That whole go home, unwind, leave your work at school, draw a bubble bath, have some wine, and uh, just relax and take care of yourself. I'm going to set the precedence right now and say there's a not enough of the W's in this world to take care of what's going on. There's not enough water, wine, whiskey, whatever, uh, in order to draw enough baths and have enough drinks in order to unwind. So I think there's something fundamentally that we need to start doing in order to take care of each other so that when we are finally out of this pandemic, we don't go back to what we've normally done before. And what I'm proposing this evening is that we take a look at things that we've thought about before, but that we can think about in a different way, because I'm hoping that we will be able to take time to realign ourselves to what our real and true purpose is as educators, so we can move through our classroom and life with our purpose in mind. So just very briefly, why talk about this? You already kind of heard who I am. Oh, by the way, uh, pretty soon you'll see me with a lot shorter hair because that's what I normally look like. I'm only growing all this out to donate it and I can't wait until I do. I'm going to save a lot. Here's a math problem. How much money will I save when I finally cut this hair off and shampoo, conditioner, <laughs> stuff like that? What I'm about is people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. Uh, so we're going to talk a bit towards the end of this about your why so we can center on uh, on your plan, uh, partially to end off this school year, but especially if you decide to stick it out. And if you're one of the people who are not in the mass exodus of leaving the educational profession, what we can do hitting the ground running come August or September. Why it matters, uh, this is a picture of my daughter. She's in the educational system right now. She has been pandemically learning for the last two years. I, we just had her 504 meeting today and it went very well, but she's the reason why it matters because although I don't think you need to reproduce in order to be a great teacher, having a kid in the system, it sheds a brighter light on things that I knew was there but I could see it in her eyes when she would come home, like from her first grade classroom after the teacher said, my daughter's name's Kieran, after she told Kieran and the rest of the girls in the classroom that to do better at math, you need to start thinking more like the boys. So things like that just kind of stand out. And I was gonna wait until I retired to say all this stuff, but I figured, eh, now's as good a time as any. So our goals for the evening are a couple of them. We're gonna understand the 10 tips. We're gonna connect the tips to your experiences. So if I tell you any stories, yes, reflect on what I'm saying, but the best thing to do is think about a similar situation and a similar story. The third one is to identify concrete steps to thrive. And the fourth one is to dive deep and have real conversations. I put that in quotes because we're on a webinar, so keep the chat live. And speaking of the chat, I want to know how all of you are doing today. So I'm just going to invite, well, it can be a chat waterfall if you want, but I'd say just put it in as soon as you make up your mind. Today, you're feeling happy, carefree, relaxed, excited, focused, stressed, angry, bees. Eh. How are you feeling today? I'll give you a second to think about that. And we don't have to chat waterfall it. Just put it in when you're ready. Stressed. <laughs> Wait, is the stress because of the platform and I wasn't able to get on? <laughs> I apologize for that. Happy vertical. <laughs> That's good. I see more than a couple of stressed, exhausted. Yes. Meh. If you're stressed, exhausted, or unfocused, or eh, and a little bit of everything, then you've come to the right place. Better. That's cool. <laughs> only work in the classroom two days a week yeah it seems like wednesday feels like friday and not a good way now <laughs> overwhelmed that's a huge thing so in terms of what you're feeling now and keep on bringing them in i love the glass of wine what I want to do also is talk about the pandemic explicitly so that we can then implicitly talk about what we need to consider in order to survive and thrive. So my pitch in terms of this COVID pandemic 
is that we're talking a lot about rehumanizing mathematics classrooms right now, but this is never going to happen until we just allow ourselves time to be human. Uh, we've all gone through a lot, and I don't care about your political affiliation or what you view in terms of COVID, its existence, how bad it is or not, but I'll share with you a little over a year ago, my mother caught COVID and for a full week straight, she was in the hospital and every evening, I couldn't go in to, to see her, but every evening I would talk to her on the phone and we would literally say our goodbyes because we didn't know if she was gonna make it through the morning. So all that to say, um, this has affected everybody in different ways. I have no idea why I think I'm lucky. I haven't caught it yet. Nobody in my uh, household has. But just be aware that people are still going through this. And my pitch is that the pandemic didn't really cause the problems that we're in right now. It more shed light on problems that were already there and exacerbated them. As an example, there's always been, whatever you want to call it, learning loss. <laughs> but now it's a bigger deal, in my opinion, because, well, people who look like me are experiencing it. Straight white males are facing the same thing that underrepresented populations have already experienced in our educational system in perpetuity. So as we go through these 10 tips, I hope you think, yeah, this was around pre-pandemic, so what personal stories are we gonna use in order to ground our answers to responses to sentiments? Um, as an example, in math education, as I said, there's a huge push to rehumanize the math classrooms, but honestly, given what I've experienced over the pandemic, I believe now more than ever that we don't need to necessarily rehumanize mathematics. We just need to stop dehumanizing it. And we do this by realizing that mathematics isn't a grand in nature's language. It's human's language. Human beings came up with it. And as such, it's already humanized. We just need to Stop stripping the humanization away from the mathematics. So a second aspect is to ask you, and you can just put it in the chat whenever you want, what one thing, if you had to choose one thing, lingers the most for you in terms of the classroom, school, your personal life? What's the single biggest negative residual right now for you from the pandemic thus far? It looks like so far here, there's that emotional well-being, both of the staff and the students. Um, reduction of self-esteem with math, more people are seeing themselves less as math people. Yeah, giving up normal patterns like exercising, burnout, mental stress. I'm with you all. And I'm hoping that, that these will help focus you and help you determine what really matters most because we're not gonna be able to fix everything that's happened. So we need to ground ourselves in the things that really truly matter most. I've seen that a lot, less motivated students on every level and detachment. Um, I was thinking about a metaphor a few months ago where early on in my career, I'm a kite flying in the wind, but the wind's controlled on a tight string. I feel connected. And then this huge gust of wind called the pandemic came along. And now I just kind of feel like I'm floating in this huge gust with like nobody's even holding on to that string. And it's not tethered to, to really the things that I entered the education in the first place for. So, so in terms of that, I'm gonna invite us to go through 10 different things to really think about how this might have changed for us and how this can recenter us and get us motivated again in a hopefully soon post-pandemic environment so that we can not necessarily let go of the things that we learned, but use what we've learned in order to do things differently. So number 10 comes from something somebody told me when I started teaching 26 years ago. I was uh, dating somebody in my first couple of months of teaching and we were out to dinner and she looked at me because I was very excited about teaching. But she, she just looked at my excitement and said, why are you so excited? You're just a teacher, you're nothing special. And that's always kind of stuck with me because I thought, well, I don't know, I might not be anything special, but what I do with my students permeates their existence and others around them for generations to come. 
So I realized that there's things that we do even now that we are not going to remember. We may not see and feel as much because we're stressed out, but our students see and feel it. And I think we still have as profoundly an effect on our students as we've had before, like effects that can change the traje trajectories of certain students' lives. In terms of that, I'm going to share a story of a skipping student. It was uh, a student that I had a few years ago. He would come in every other week and dye his hair different colors. Uh, on this particular week, uh, the color was purple. And he was, you know, a leather-wearing, you known affiliate, a gang member, and everything else. Supposed to be a really tough student. And he was getting Fs in all of the classes, except in my Algebra One class, he was getting an A as a senior, so he was finally passing it. And I had a blast with him. And I just remembered when he left the classroom one day, it was a particularly fun day and we laughed a lot. And I just said, hey, I just wanted to let you know, I, I really looked forward to seeing you and I really had a lot of fun with you in class. And this hardened uh, gangster literally skipped out of the room because what I said just made him happy because he felt like he belonged there. Um, so my pitch to you, if you're feeling disconnected with the students, is choose a student each and every day and act like you're dying to see them, like one or two students. Have it pre-planned if you want, but don't make it artificial. Don't do it in a creepy way. Do it in a way like, hey, how was your day yesterday? Or how was your weekend? Or just ask them anything that's not related to the mathematics. Sometimes when I do this, I have a nice conversation for a minute or two as other students are entering the room, and I learn a lot from my students by doing this. Other times, they're just like, eh, it's okay. And I'll take that as an answer because I know that they know that I see them, I hear them, and that I care about them. And I've been doing that a lot more lately, and honestly, I've been getting a lot more honest answers when I ask that question of my students as they're coming into the classroom, because I think everybody just needs somebody to listen right about now. Number nine, <laughs> we need to let go of some things, because we have far more stresses now than we ever have before. Some of them have always been here, but they tend to, it's kind of like the last straw type of deal. So we need to let certain things go of that we as teachers might stress out a little bit. Take a breath. I'm going to say that it really doesn't matter if students cheat. <laughs> My pitch here is that it's all going to work out in the end. I remember that uh, I went through my calculus sequence in college, Calc 1, 2, and 3. And there were a lot of people in that classroom who used their graphing calculators to cheat. They would just hide a bunch of things in the program. And I had to decide whether or not I would cheat. I decided that I wouldn't, and my grade suffered a little bit because of it. But then I was with all of these students, again, in the advanced calculus class, and they were having a really hard time. Why? Because it was an all-proof class. We didn't have calculators, so they couldn't cheat anymore. So I think about that a lot. I'm not saying don't monitor. I'm saying monitor for the students. Catch them if they cheat. They suffer the consequences, and then you move on without judgment because they can learn and do and be better. But don't stress yourself out too much because if they cheat and if you don't catch them, well, it's going to catch up to them anyway, and they're going to wind up failing anyway. So it kind of they're shooting themselves in the foot if they're cheating. Number nine, really doesn't matter if students understand the first time around, part two of number nine. If your curriculum spirals, then realize that some students are going to need more time. Like in the 1950s, Jerome Bruner came up with the aspect of a spiraled curriculum where you're revisiting the topic, but you're adding more and more depth of knowledge to it. And according to the generalizations of the research, as long as you get past that 50% threshold, then it's okay to move on. I wouldn't move on early in my career because I would want every student and I would spend two, three days teaching the same thing. But I didn't realize that they needed the conversation from day two and day three to change so that we can have a couple of days, come back, revisit it, have a different type of conversation, maybe with a different instructional or language routine. And that's what they would need. A third part, it really doesn't matter if you had a stellar lesson plan. It's the old, if a tree falls in the woods and nobody's there to hear it, la, 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 la. I'm going to make the same pitch with you. If you have a killer lesson, I've had conversations like this before with teachers I've coached. How'd the lesson go? I nailed it. Did the, and how, what did the students think about it? Did they learn anything? 
I don't know, then my response is, then did you really teach? So have that killer lesson plan, but don't, don't worry about pausing in the moment, after the moment, to really reflect on how engaged the students were. Because now more than ever, they need that engagement component and they need that motivation. Hopefully it's coming internally, but we need to give them a little more external motivation nowadays. It really doesn't matter if your students did well on the standardized assessment. I wrote my first book about partially about testing over teaching and standardized assessments. And I'll share with you now that California State University systems, no more SAT. And I have to verify this, but I just found out from another colleague today that the University of California system, no more SATs. I hope that's true. Because my pitch here is one test doesn't determine somebody's worth, especially if it's a high stakes standardized assessment. My pitch here, and you're gonna get my information towards the end as well, reach out if you're interested in it, is using standards-based grading with a grading for learning protocol. And there's ways that you can do that where you afford students multiple attempts at mastery. And I've done this in my classroom for about a decade now. And from that, I've learned the the biggest thing that you can take away from a student that's going to be the most detrimental is their hope. So if you don't stress the assessments quite as much, give them multiple opportunities, they're going to perform better in your classroom. And another one here is it really doesn't matter if you make a mistake in the classroom. If we really truly believe in growth mindset, it should be growth mindset for everybody. I'm the worst at this. As soon as I make a mistake, I want to erase it right away. But what's good for the students is good for us. So if we throw a wrench in this, the growth mindset, we're pushing it a lot for the students. We need to push that a lot for ourselves too. We need to forgive ourselves. Like not only the mathematical mistakes, but if a lesson doesn't go well, that's okay. You reflect on it and you do better the next day. To this day, I always want to apologize to my second period because when fifth period comes around, I teach it better. <laughs> but there's no getting around that. So, and also to be careful of the aspect of when we say something like, some of my students can't do this. I always question who is the some? Because odds are they're not going to look like me if I'm saying that some of my students can't do it. So it's just really realizing and calling out our implicit biases, knowing that we all can grow. Are you all ready for a little bit of interaction? And since it's a webinar, I'm just assuming everybody's like, yes, I am. So <laughs> I'm going to try this. And if it fails miserably, then that's OK. But I'm going to put a Jamboard. And let's see if people can access this Jamboard. And it'll have a question up there for you. And the question you're going to see is, what's your policy on cheating? Let's just take that one thing that can cause an extreme amount of stress for people in terms of monitoring it, catching people cheating, uh, having to deal with parents after they have to realize that their child cheated on an assessment. And also knowing if you're even if you're remote in any way, shape, or form still, let's be honest, there's a lot of cheating going on when we went virtual. And we're seeing those gaps because some kids could cheat easier. Are y'all able to access the Jamboard and put a post-it? I see some people up here, so I'm going to share that so that we can uh, see here what people are saying. It gets written up and there's consequences, grade of zero, or they need to redo it. That's interesting. Now I'm wondering if the grade of a zero or need to redo it is up to the discretion of the teacher. I like policies where the teachers have more discretion and more control. Um, yeah, the students receive a zero. The one thing that I try to do when students uh, receive the zero is let them understand and know that it's only one assessment out of many. So a zero does kind of drop your grade a bit and you cheated, you suffer the consequence, but if they do well, they can make their way back from that, from that zero. I remember about four years ago, the hardest time I had with a student cheating was when he was a part of what they referred to as a legacy family. In other words, they went there, their parent went there, their grandparents went there, their great grandparents went to this institution. And it was really difficult to get the parents to realize that yes, he cheated and yes, there's a consequence, but let's move on from here. 
Oh, yes, that's a good point in terms of this post that how do you define cheating? Because different organizations will define it different ways. Um, <laughs> thanks for doing the Jamboard. And please feel free because you have access to keep adding to the Jamboard. And I'll give you that link in that doc and keep it live so we can keep the conversation going. What I'm hearing overarchingly is that uh, there's usually conferences involved. You're going to follow up with somebody else, be it an administrator or a parent. And the most that I'm seeing here is that you'll give an option for a redo or a zero. I kind of like the option of a redo because then if you were cheating and you know it, I mean, how much of grades grade compliance and how much of grades grade what they actually really know mathematically? So. But then it also depends, too, because if they cheat more than once, then that's a repeat offense. And I tend to get a little more strict there. But again, I just suffer the consequences and you move on from there. So is everybody ready for number eight? <laughs> I'm just going to treat it like it's a Zoom and I can see everybody's heads nod. So for number eight, teaching is personal. It's very personal to me. It's a calling for me. But I have to remember to never take it personally. And in that effort, what I think about is when an issue happens in my classroom 99 times out of 100, it's not about me. And it's usually not about something that's happened in my classroom. So whenever anything happens in the classroom, and I have my deal breakers, there's a few different things that if somebody does it in my classroom, like if they verbally or otherwise embody any of the isms, racism, sexism, any of the isms in my classroom, I'm taking care of that right then and there. Usually it's a conversation in the hall, but when they go out into the hallway, the first thing I say to them isn't, don't you disrespect me or anybody else? This is my classroom. What's wrong with you? My first three words are, what's going on? And from that, usually I'll get exactly what's going on. Like I had a student who was uh, acting up in class and I asked those three words and uh, about a week from that time, she was going in to see if she had cervical cancer or not, if she was gonna have surgery and if she was gonna be able to have kids for the rest of her life. Um, so I shared my cancer story with her and the, the, the moral of that story was, was the student acting out in class? Yes. Was she disengaged? Absolutely. But given what she was going through, she kind of had every right to not care about the mathematics at that time. She, her health was much more important. So especially now as we reach the ambiguous end of a pandemic, transitioning to this endemic and uncharted territory for us all, if somebody acts out, ask them what's going on. And more often than not, it's not going to be something about you. So my pitch here also is align your curricula and your pedagogical strategies to your personality and just be you. Keep teaching personal, but never take it personally. As a number seven, I'm going to say right off the bat that it's okay to love your students. A lot of people feel like this is okay, but I'm talking about like to genuinely care about your students. And with that, I'm going to share a story of a hug. When I interact with people, I try to keep in mind that we're all doing the best we can with what we have and what we know. So if somebody comes in, I want to be empathetic. I want to be there for them. I want to listen. A student came in at the end of fifth period. It was uh, after lunch, and she had been noticeably crying for a while. I asked her what was going on. She said nothing. The bell rang. She started to leave. I tried to catch her again. She left saying she didn't need to talk, went to her next classroom. So it didn't sit well with me. So I called security. They were kind enough to come over, watch my class while they looked up what classroom uh, the student went to. So I went over and I uh, asked the teacher if I could pull her out into the hallway. And we had a conversation about what she was crying about. And something happened at lunch that was, uh, it was pretty serious and it really got to her. And we talked in the hallway for about 10 minutes. And the thing I remember the most about that, though, is there was a human being right there in front of me, breaking down, uncontrollably crying. And because she was a female student and I was a male teacher, I didn't do what I would have done in my personal life, which is just give her a hug. 
<laughs> strange thing is a few years later, I bumped into her and we both talked about that event. And she told me that it was profound for her because I took the time to, to go and seek her out and talk to her. And I told her it was profound for me because I always felt bad because I didn't give you a hug. So from that point forward, my personal response to this is if somebody's breaking down in front of me, I'm not going to go up and hug them, but I'll ask them if they want one. But having said that, if you're going to show your students that you care, this is an extremely personal choice. So there's a lot of people who say, I'm not touching a student, and I unequivocally get that. So it's a matter of realizing who you are personally and as a teacher and uh, aligning how you show you care with what's acceptable to you. I'm also going to say as a subset of that, it's okay to dislike your students as well. <laughs> so my pitch here, and I'm going to say that's right. I said it. I'm in it. I'm here to represent it. <laughs> There's times when some students kind of rub me the wrong way. I don't know if any of you have ever had this experience, but before I had children, I had that, I will never name my child this person's name because I had to yell at them so many times in class. Not literally, but it's that sit down, get to work and everything else. My pitch here is that you can't fix that you don't what you don't acknowledge and it might materialize in strange ways. So the reason why I say it's okay to dislike your students is because we're all humans, we all have emotions, and any emotion is fair game. But if we don't acknowledge and deal with those emotions head on, then we might do or say things that we don't intend. So you don't want to be saying, I'll show you. You don't want to be maybe nonchalantly not calling on them as much. Next time you change the seating arrangement around, putting them in the back instead of the front, maybe give them less time to answer a question or to ask a question. Assume the halo horn effect. What that basically means is if somebody does something really good or one thing really bad, we just tend to say that that's who the person is instead of giving them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, it's all about implicit bias, and it's all about acknowledging the feelings that you have for your students, especially if it's a feeling that they're getting on your nerves so that you can acknowledge where it comes from, so that you can be reflective on it, and so that you don't do any things implicitly that might give the student less of a voice in your classroom. And on that note, I'm gonna give you an example because my daughter uh, has uh, ADHD and she's experienced in the classroom more than once, uh, something that I'm going to show you right now with this video. What's wrong with you? What? Hi everyone. I don't have too much time, so pay pay attention. What's wrong with you? Focus. For someone so smart, you can be so stupid. I mean, how could you forget about that? We just talked about it. Cuddy, something wrong with your brain. Do you even think? I do think, actually. Um, <clears throat> in fact, I'm finishing a PhD in experimental cognitive psychology, or literally, the scientific study of thinking. But I have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, predominantly inattentive. I mean, I've spent so much time distracted by extraneous things, you may notice that one of my eyes has almost permanently dedicated itself to my periphery. <laughs> but seriously, okay. <laughs> As of 2011, the CDC reported that 11% of children ages 4 to 17 had been diagnosed with ADHD. That's 6.4 million kids, three Houstons. And unlike fruity cereal, ADHD is not just for kids. But 4% of adults have been diagnosed, 9.8 million people, New York City plus Philadelphia. One thing I forgot to mention, all of the expressions that I began with have something in common. They've all been said to me by people who have proven time and again their unconditional love, support, and willingness to do anything for me. But in those moments, they were extremely frustrated. So, so my pitch here is that my daughter has ADHD and she's... Uh, She's experienced this before in the classroom. She's heard these things said to her. And what he said at the end is, is true. It's, 
It doesn't mean that the people care less for you. It just means that they were frustrated. So we need to monitor now more than ever our frustrations so we don't do that in our classrooms because that can be devastating. I've seen the tears on the other side when a teacher has talked to a student via my daughter. So it's important that we acknowledge all of our feelings so that we can handle them and we don't get to that point. So number six, some of your colleagues want you to fail. <laughs> I learned this the hard way. I had an eye opener uh, about 15 years into teaching. Uh, well, actually, it was, yeah, it was around 2011 when I got a grant uh, to implement iPads in the classroom. And I started grading for learning with a standards-based grading protocol with randomized assessments so that students can take any assessment as many times as they wanted because it would automatically randomize the questions. They would have to do things like come in for tutoring with me and one other organization and earn the, earn the privilege of taking the assessment again so that they could do better. But the hardest year I had in education was the first year that I got all of my students to pass my classes. Um, it was a really difficult year because three or four of my colleagues, um, they didn't think that I could experience that success. And they especially didn't think that our students could experience that success. Uh, it was in an avenue where uh, my math department had, uh, if you're not a part of California, we have a program out here called AVID, Advancement Via Individualized Determination. It basically takes those C students and gives them um, skills in order to do and be better. So they were going to go to a uh, on a field trip one day to University of California, Irvine. We were having a department meeting, and in that department meeting, the department chair said, I don't know why these students are going to take a trip to a university to experience that, because the next time they're going to experience it is if they get a job as a janitor. Um, a lot of people laughed. Some people were appalled, but that was when I really knew in no uncertain terms that some people ex explicitly don't think much about us and they might want your students to fail as well, or they might expect them to. When I had trouble with this, I was talking to an administrator and that administrator said golden words to me. She just basically looked at me and said, are you here for the adults or are you here for the kids? So if you're experiencing something in terms of any type of uh, teacher to teacher or colleague to colleague bullying, then I, one, offered the advice of taking care of it head on. And number two, really centering your, centering your efforts around the kids. Um, and also, this is a mistake I've made in the past, find your adult allies so that you guys can have each other's backs. So on a number five, we need to revisit something called <laughs> some administrators don't care if the kids learn. I say some here and I want to be empathetic because a lot of administrators, they are even more busy than they've ever been just like we are. So there's a lot of things that administrators are having to deal with now that they've never had to deal with. I mean, we're talking about, I'll give you an example right here. If you look at my video, referrals are a matter of one inch. Like literally, if a mask is here as opposed to here, that's defiance in some districts. And that's right there is something huge that we have to take into consideration that we haven't had to take into consideration before. So in terms of this, I'm gonna show you a real quick clip and then we're gonna reflect on it. This is what it is, okay? I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. Now you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. And this is one of the only recorded uh, interviews that Bruce Lee gave before he passed away. And this stuck with me because of the fact that this embodies how I try to approach a lot of things, especially now in an educational setting. But what I think about here is partially in terms of dealing with this, partially in terms of classroom management, because I'll tell you right now, the best way to get a job as a teacher and to keep a job as a teacher 
is make sure you have a good classroom management routine. Because whether or not the administrators are centered on students learning, they are centered on whether or not you're going to make a problem for them. Because in the administrator world, there's a saying that, that goes something to the effect of 10% of the teachers write 90% of the referrals. And then you get a reputation. And then in my experience, some of them don't have your back quite as much. <laughs> so I would say, um, do this, not only in the classroom, but outside of the classroom, but especially in the classroom in terms of classroom management, flow, when in doubt, flow instead of crash. And I made this mistake my first two, three years of teaching, I would crash too much. So what happens if, is if you have a disruption, especially now because everybody's nerves are fried, if somebody across the room is, is not engaging and you engage with them and start uh, disciplining them from across the room, that becomes public. What that means then is it's no longer about the behavior. It's about the student saving face and it's about you having to win a battle. Otherwise, students are going to lose respect for you and more and more students are going to uh, start messing around in your classroom if you don't win that. So it's a more of a matter of flowing. It's a more a matter of going over, having that conversation with anybody, adults or kids alike, giving them the benefit of the doubt, listening to what they have to say, but also insisting that they listen to what you have to say. So I would ask you if you think of it in terms of more flowing, not ignoring the worst thing to do in terms of classroom management and is act like you just don't see it. But like if somebody's not doing work instead of yelling at them across the classroom, walking over calmly saying, can you pick up your pencil and start doing work or asking, asking them, why aren't you doing your work today? Uh, so just have it be more of a conversation and I think we'll do and be better in that regard. For number four, here's my pitch where a disability is not a disability. Uh, class sizes are starting to go up more and more, especially in terms of a teacher shortage and we can't get subs and whatnot. And if you teach any integrated class with the SPAD, special education or uh, English learners or whatnot, I wanna touch on two things. Hammerley and, Hammersley and Atkinson has a article called Culture as Disability. And the way I can best uh, formulate this right now is, to say, be careful what you claim as a label because it has a way of coming back and claiming you. So if you have any IEPs, 504s, or anything like it, that if you have a student who's uh, OCD, ADHD, dyslexic, or runs the gamut who can be integrated in your classroom, remember that they're people first and the label isn't their label. It just is something that we've identified that can help us to teach them better. The other one is Malcolm Gladwell's David and Goliath. So that basically says a certain amount of different with support. Like if you have ADHD or dyslexia, you are much more likely to become a CEO of a major corporation. Because what happens is if you get the right amount of support, you have to learn how to learn differently than everybody else, which means you make meaning differently, which means you see things differently which means that you're going to solve problems and approach life in a slightly different way with a slightly different view. So I'm just going to show this video right now because it makes the pitch far better than I ever could in terms of thinking about what we perceive as weaknesses in, in our classroom and really trying to turn those into strengths as much as possible. I have a lot of memories from when I was a child. One that's always stuck out to me though was when I was about 10 years old and I was in school and I struggled. And I, I didn't struggle with English, math, or science. I struggled holding still. And I would try to listen and focus and process ideas, but I couldn't help myself. And then to be honest, I would sit there and then I would just start tapping. And the students in the class would look at me and they'd say, hey, stop tapping. A lot of the time, I didn't even realize I was doing it. And then eventually even the teachers got after me and they would yell at me and they'd say, Clint, you have to stop tapping. It got so bad that I got sent to the principal's office for tapping. And he said to me, okay, maybe when you go back to class, just try sitting on your hands. And so I did, I went back to class and when I felt myself starting to tap, I just, I did this, I sat on my hands. And that worked for about five seconds. 
One time I was tapping in class and my teacher, Mr. Jensen, looked at me and he yelled. And he said, Clint, stay after class. And I thought to myself, this is it, I am done. Now I've always been the type of person that believes that a single moment in time can change a person's life. And this was one of those moments for me and I will never forget it. And so I was sitting there with Mr. Jensen and an empty classroom. And he walked past me and he sat next to his desk and he said, Clint, come here, I wanna to talk to you. And as he looked me right in the eye, he said, now I need you to know something, you're not in trouble, but I do have just one question that I have to ask you. And he asked, he said, have you ever thought about playing the drums? And in that moment, Mr. Jensen, he leaned back and he opened the top drawer of his desk. And he reached in and he pulled out my very first pair of drumsticks. And he held them in his hands and he looked at me and he said, hey Clint, you're not a problem. I think you're a drummer. never put those sticks down. I've toured, recorded, and played drums all over the world. My whole college education was paid for with drumsticks in my hand. Just because of a single moment in time when somebody believed in me and he saw something in me that I didn't even see within myself. And from that moment, I learned that there's a difference between being the best in the world and being the best for the world. Every time I play this video, my mission is not to tear up and it never works. <laughs> so, my pitch in this one with this video is a couple of things. The, the first thing and the most important is, well, if you can, be a Mr. Jensen. What if your students' perceived biggest weakness is actually their greatest strength? And I'll turn that around and say, especially now, what if your perceived weakness is actually your greatest strength? And we just haven't thought about it that way. Um, another thing I think about is in, in terms of the impact we have, especially now, is we never know when we're going to have this type of impact. It could be as simple as giving somebody some drumsticks, drumsticks and it changes the trajectory of their lives and they feel like they matter. Like I'm thinking about a, a conversation I had just a few months ago when I went up to uh, visit one of my dear friends and we were talking about one of the times we were on a committee together and uh, she had left the, the room in this uh, committee of like, I don't know how many people were there, 40, 50, 60. And I just noticed that when she came back, there were, um, it, it, the energy just seemed different. And uh, I just, I, I even, I forgot what I had said. It was something to the effect of, you know, if you need to talk, I'm here. But long story short, this happened quite a few years ago. And when we were talking, she brought it up as always remembering it. And I felt bad because I remembered the moment, but I didn't remember it as an extremely profound moment because I was just offering somebody who I cared about to be there and talk with them. Um, and sometimes that's all it takes is just, hey, how are you doing? And uh, I'm here if you need me, especially with our students. Uh, there's a lot of people who are losing a lot of support structures and we need to be there for them. So another thing that I want to keep uh, us aligned with here is when we talk about this, when we tell our stories, uh, I want to talk about counter narratives as well, which I don't like using this word because the, is, the definition is an alternative or contradictory narrative. As we're talking about these stories, I just want to make sure that we don't set a hierarchical structure within our stories themselves. So when we think about these things, that we invite student stories and that we don't call them counter stories. Instead, we call them perspectives so that they're on an even playing ground. Because my hope is that we'll create more conversations with our students and that we'll realize, as corny as it sounds, 
that we're all a part of the same ongoing human narrative. So if you do have these conversations with your students, give them time, give them a voice, and give everybody an equal playing field in your classroom to be able to uh, tell their story. So we got about 10 minutes left. And uh, thank you, Alicia. You're a best friend ever, too. Um, I'm going to go on to number three. I'm going to kind of skip this Jamboard because we won't have as much time. But I do want to get to this one video here. And my pitch here is to know your why. And I'm going to ask you right now to just think for a moment about why you're in education. Um, and come up with an answer in under 10 seconds. Because if you overthink it, you're going to shoot to the wrong, <laughs> not the wrong answer, but an answer that's not quite aligned to your why. And especially think about why you're still in education, because I feel a mass exodus coming on. And rightly so, there's a lot of people who are burnt out, but I really want to recenter us in our why. So I'm going to show you this video really quickly, and then we're going to reflect on our why. And I'm going to so fast forward a little a bit. Lot of to times when people hear the part. phrase, how do I know? The next thing they say is, is to know what? Uh, we do a series called episode. One episode in particular at an event. And in the middle of my show, I'll just sit down and start talking to the audience. And funny just happens. Or I'll meet somebody who's really interesting. So I met this one guy, and he said that he teaches music at a school. I was like, all right, you teach music. You know, um, can you sing? And then uh, I'm just going to show you the clip. Check it. So you're a musical director. Cool. Yes, sir. All right, so... Um, let me get a couple, let me get a couple bars of like uh, Amazing Grace. Can you do the first part of that? Me, go ahead. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Wow. That brought could sing. You know what I'm saying? All right, all right. Now, once you give me the version, is if uh, your uncle just got out of jail, you got shot in the back when you was a kid. I'm just saying, let me see the hood version real quick. If you know which version I'm talking about, just see if that exists. Let me see what you got. Amazing grace, how sweet the First time I asked him to sing, he knew what he was doing. The second time I asked him to sing, he knew why he was doing it. When you know your why, your what has more impact because you're walking in or towards your purpose. And let me make that a little more concrete for you because that can seem a little ambiguous. It seems motivational. But what we're really talking about here is recentering ourselves fundamentally, thinking about who we are as teachers, who we and educators and administrators and coaches, who we want our students to become, and uh, also that connection of how we want mathematics to be taught in our classroom. So, overarchingly, my pitch here is that we need to center ourselves on our why. And I'm ripping this off by Simon Sinek. He's more in the business end of the world, but I'm going to couch it in terms, of, uh, in terms of education. He has this golden circle, and in it, he talks about the why, the how, and the what. 
the why is your purpose. It's your cause. It's your beliefs. In the pandemic, and always, I would say we need to let our why be evolutionary. Like for me, when I first started teaching, my why was because a certain person by the name of Larry Kamen is one of the best math teachers ever. When I was leaving his classroom at the end of the period, my junior year of high school, he knew something tragic happened, not to me, but to somebody in my family. And he just said, hey, Sean, I know you're going to make it through this. You're, you know, you're strong. And if you need me, I'm here. And that just centered me in a way that you could not believe. So that night, that literally that night, I decided that I was going to be a math teacher because if I could affect somebody the way he did me, then that's a profession I want to be in. But then I thought a few years later, if you don't adjust your why, that's when you're going to burn out and that's when you're going to quit. A few years later, I wanted to get them to think, not think like me, but my why was I just want to get them to pause and think about the world mathematically. Now I know more than ever my why in the last few years is to help other people find their why. The second one is your action. Once you know your why, your how is it's your actions, it's your process, it's your curricular, your pedagogical strategies, your relationships. It's the actions of the kids and the adults alike. And the what is the results, it's your outcome. So the what is a result of the how, which is fueled by your why. And if you don't have your why, everything else falls apart. So for me, my what, it's less about assessments and grades and it's more about getting students to stop and think, see the humanity inherent in mathematics, uh, and above all, getting an equality of opportunity and voice and choice and whatnot. So just kind of revisiting that again with the why, the how, and the what. I would say that usually people reverse this. They know their what. I know the outcome I want. I want, I want them to get better grades. Or I want them to do this, that, or the other. Then they go to their how, and usually the how is, well, I got my textbook. That's how I'm going to teach it. Uh, well, I got it all figured out. I really don't need my why. My suggestion is to really center yourself in the why. Because even if things change minorly, if you're going through with your why as your purpose, you're going to have a lot more energy and it's going to look and feel different in your classroom. I'm going to give you the number two and the number one in the next two minutes. I'm not going to show you the next video, but it is on the handout that you'll be able to give. Um, the number two is to find your voice so that you can balance your voice, value student voice. And the number one is it's all about relationships. If you remember nothing else, remember that. The relationships are going to get your job. It's going to keep your job. It's going to take you to places that you never even dreamed possible. And it's going to help you to get your students there as well. So. A couple of things. Number one, a call to action. We need to learn how to listen to student voices before using our own because they don't need to be like or think like us. They just need to think. A second one is if the system works for you, then the system is not a problem for you. But you need to make it a problem because ability is dispersed equally, but opportunity is not. It's our job as teachers and educators to disperse this opportunity equally. The third one is to choose your battles wisely um, and have your battles align with your why. If they're not aligned with your why, then maybe it's not a battle that you want to engage in. And then the fourth one is the realization that profound things happen when one human being lets another human being know that their voice matters. And for students, the more they feel their voice is heard, the greater their opportunity to learn. And with that, there are resources, but we are about at time. I'm going to breeze through and encourage you to look at that form that I gave you because you will have a student interaction checklist on there, an implicit bias test, and also a personality test that will uh, help you to do the things that, uh, that I'm asking you to do. And in closing, I just say embrace this. I didn't come this far to only come this far. There is an end to this pandemic things. And as I say that, I want to say things will go back to normal, but I hope things don't go back to normal. I hope we can use this to reflect on how we can be and do better. And at that, thanks for your time. And you have my contact information. Please don't hesitate to reach out to me in any way, because I would love to uh, continue the conversation and hear your stories and hear what you think. All right, thank you very much, Sean. Uh, lots of good things to think about. Um, uh, 
just in terms of relationships mattering and uh, centering on your why, um, just a lot of a lot of good things to think about. Um, so I appreciate you uh, presenting tonight, and I apologize for you know the fact that we didn't have a lot of time for questions. But if you have any questions for our presenter, uh, feel free to type it in the chat right now um, while we're winding down. Um, so thank you again, Sean, for sharing with us. Um, I I uh, want to thank everyone also that's in attendance tonight um, or this morning or this afternoon, wherever you are around the world. Um, our next presentation is in two weeks. So that would be April 19th. And we're going to be having Mike Flynn share with us powerful moments in math class, why certain experiences stand out for students and how to create more of them. So yeah, this was wonderful. Uh, definitely something that I think was uh, very useful for a lot of us here. So thank you very much, Sean. Oh, thanks for hosting. I really appreciate all the work you're doing on the on the end that nobody can see. <laughs> <It helps a lot. laughs> yep, yep. All right. Good night, everyone. Have a wonderful evening. Bye.